0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially, the Commercial Awareness Podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes. In this episode, we cover economic sanctions and asset freezing, big tech's M and A, and the competition around that. Going meat-free and the business trends around this, and finally, the Royal Mail, the Post Office, and their place in the modern UK. All of this and more in this episode hi there Chris and welcome to the podcast how are you doing on this fine March day I'm
1: doing very well indeed Ben great to hear from you
0: great to hear from you there Chris as well and great that the weather is turning now it feels very much more like the spring um hope you're starting to enjoy the weather hope we're getting through this this winter been a really tough one with the things going on uh, around around the world, but hopefully as we get to spring, hopefully things will start getting better, improving, um, and the weather definitely is, which is which is always a good sign as we change the season. So right, we are going to be focusing on three core stories plus one fun one. What we're aiming to do, we're a podcast for students, for people starting in the working world, and to give them an understanding of the economic and business trends around them. We don't do every single story, but we cover for eight to 10 minutes each story to give you a bit of analysis to help you understand. But the whole point of this is to make you feel more commercially aware. So whether you've got conversations with your line manager at work that you want to be getting involved in, that's great. Hopefully this will help. Um, Or alternatively, if you're going into interviews or um, assessment centres, this will hopefully give you all of the insights you need to, uh, to to understand the wider business world around the businesses that you will be interviewing for. Right, we're going to start with the first story. Chris, are you ready to get going?
1: I'm raring to go, Ben.
0: Excellent. That's always good to hear, Chris. So the first story of this month's episode is all about freezing assets and economic sanctions so we've had lots of messages lots of questions about this from our members from the listeners um and as a business podcast we want to cover these because it's what's going on in the business and economic world as we speak um but as i said we are a business podcast but we don't want to glaze over what's going on in ukraine specifically um and all of the upsetting, of, quite frankly, my, myself and Chris were talking for the episode about the upsetting images, videos coming out of um, Ukraine, and it's been really positive to see all of the Bright Network members, all of the wider UK population um, getting behind and supporting this humanitarian crisis, because it, it really is awful. And as this business podcast, we don't want to glaze over any of that sort of stuff, um, but for us, it's all about that economic and, and business understanding. So that's where we're going to be focusing the next seven or eight minutes of our time. So with that, Chris, um, we've heard about the freezing of assets. We've heard about the economic sanctions. We've heard that these are the biggest economic sanctions um, seen for since the Second World War, I think is uh, what commentators are saying. Um, but, but Chris, what does this mean?
1: Um, I think in in looking at this, and and you're absolutely right, um, I'm of an age where uh, I've seen a lot of things happen in the world, and the most striking thing was how the international community has come together and spoken with virtually one voice. I've never known anything like this in in my life. Um, The way to look at this, I think, is to draw a distinction between sanctions at, at a country level and sanctions against uh, individuals. So um, in, in terms of, of looking at those two, the, the aim of sanctions uh, really to create a, a stranglehold on a country's economy. This is looking at the, the economic, the, the global level. And at the very least, this makes it harder for a country to fund a war because wars are really expensive. and from the rest of the world's point of view, it's safer to implement than military reprisals, which can get out of hand very quickly. And also, it's a way of expressing universal condemnation. Um, it, it's a way, especially for smaller countries, to become part of the global community in expressing solidarity with the bigger countries that tend to be more involved in geopolitical matters. Um, and and uh, it, one of the criticisms is that it can be quite soft because those who are imposing the sanctions are not actually suffering in the way that uh, the people of Ukraine are suffering. But in a sense, although although sanctions at that level can be seen as, as soft, that's not a bad thing if it avoids direct confrontation. And uh, as we'll go on to talk about, it's actually, I think, a mistake to see the economic impact of these sanctions as being soft, because they're not. They have a very real impact on the country that is being targeted.
0: Yeah, there's some stats which back that up. So the uh, Russian government had to increase uh, interest rates to 20% after the value of their currency, the ruble, fell about 50%, um, basically overnight once these sanctions were implemented at the back end Of February, also, Russian economy is heavily reliant on oil, natural gases, especially supplying um, into Central Europe. And uh, I think America has uh, banned oil exports from Russia. The UK is phasing it out um, for the end of 2022. And uh, the EU is looking to massively phase it out um, as well, really hitting the economy, the Russian economy, where it where it hurts. Chris, I just want to touch on freezing of assets. In the last few days, we've heard a lot about Chelsea and Roman Abramovich, but then we've also heard about the Russian, any Russian bank holding stuff outside of Russia or investments foreign 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 wealth. Those assets have been frozen. Could you uh, explain to me what that means? and um, how it supports the wide economic sanctions.
1: Well, re- remaining at the the, the, the global level, uh, before we go and talk about individuals, um, th- the simplest way to understand it is countries saying, we're not going to buy your products. And, and of course, ultimately, a country's economy depends on what it produces and what it can sell abroad and to try to sell more abroad than it actually imports. So so if at a global level, all of your trading partners turn on you and say they're not going to trade with you anymore, then then economically uh, that, that puts you, as you were saying, from those stats in a very difficult position. But more specifically, some of the things that are uh, being done are uh, that they, they, they have a real technical impact. So uh, the, the freezing of uh, Russian central bank assets, if you imagine that Russia has... Um, uh, money in dollars that it's earned overseas, and those those dollars have to reside somewhere. Uh, if they reside within Russia, they're effectively in rubles. To be in dollars, which is a harder currency, they've essentially got 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 to reside elsewhere. If those assets are then frozen in those banks, the Russian government cannot get get hold of them. But this this particular instance of sanctions. Um, I think has gone one step further because for example, Russian banks are being excluded from using SWIFT. Now SWIFT is a a global banking system. It it doesn't actually transfer funds as such. It's a, 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 a messaging system. And to give you an idea of the volume, it processes 42 million messages a day between banks globally telling them when funds have been transferred and are accessible so if as a russian bank uh, and and as a russian bank you take in deposits from customers you lend the money out you borrow from other banks globally if suddenly you're cut off from this system you're essentially your 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 screens go go blank because you you don't know what funds have been deposited from banks around the world and whether you're you're Payments and transfers to those banks have taken place. So that's a very effective way of excluding you from the the global banking system. Um, So that's that's at a global level. But I I just want to talk about what you were saying about about individuals, because funny enough, at this level, it becomes more difficult. Um, one of the stances that the West makes when faced with a country like Russia is that we we, we are a, a rules-based system. We do things according to the law. Um, and what that means is that we respect property rights. And uh, the, the fact is that ownership of property can be very easily disguised. Um, uh, all you have to do is set up an offshore company Um and you can disguise ownership of it because nobody knows who the ultimate shareholders are, because in some jurisdictions there aren't registers of shareholders or bearer shares are allowed. The, the directors of the company are just local people who actually have nothing really to do with you. And that company can, can then be used to own property elsewhere, which is why a, a, a lot of the, the targeted assets in the UK are actually owned offshore through shell companies. And it's very difficult to identify what's called the beneficial interest, which is who actually has the economic ownership of these assets. Um, and in, in a country like the UK, where we do respect uh, property rights and the rule of law, it's very difficult to just say, well, We we happen to know that this mansion is owned by an oligarch and we're going to take it because you've really got to follow the law to adopt that. And the UK has been, I think, a bit slow in doing this. But one of the ways in which it could do this, I think, is to adopt the approach of what are called unexplained wealth orders. Um, UWOs and these were introduced three or four years ago. And essentially what they they do is they put the burden of proof on the person who's targeted. So in in, uh, pre UWOs, somebody might own something through a shell company and it would be incumbent on the UK government to try to identify who the beneficial owner was, which is extremely difficult. Here, what happens is the government says that asset in, in the UK we think that it's been bought with dodgy money. You have to prove to us that it's all above board. Otherwise, you will forfeit it. We will take it from you. And so I think one thing that could be done is the extension of what lawyers would call that reversal of the burden of proof, that instead of the UK government having to establish who the owner is, through the UWO approach, you put the onus on the person who's being targeted to prove that those assets have, have, have been bought above board. And that may well be something that the UK government decides to do.
0: Amazing, really interesting stuff there, Chris. So thank you so much for that. One question I did have is that economic sanctions, even though they've been talked about a lot at the moment for obvious reasons, um, there are economic sanctions on a number of different countries um, at the moment that the West and certain countries are, um, are sponsoring why is it increasingly used as a way of condemning countries? And also, kind of a second part of this question, you actually said at the, the start that typically these were quite soft because countries struggled to agree. So if they're being used more, why on the flip side are countries struggling to agree and therefore the countries that are being condemned are sometimes able to sort of shift around
1: it? Two reasons why um, global economic sanctions um, often don't work as well as they could. this is very much a matter of self-interest. and there are smaller economies which may feel we simply can't take part in this because let's say i'm I'm a small a small country that relies entirely on energy production. Um, I, I, I need to have customers for my energy. And if the customers for my energy happen to be what are regarded by others as pariah states, I still need customers for my energy. Otherwise, I don't make any money at all. I've got no money for for, for my population. So one problem is that um, imposing sanctions can have a disproportionate impact on different countries on the the global scene. So that's why they can be quite hard to agree. But also, they they aren't necessarily all that watertight, because however much of a pariah state you are, you may well have uh, friends around the world, other countries who are sympathetic to your stance, especially if they think you're being picked upon by the West, and they will support you. So it's a very complicated web of sanctions that are by no means always watertight and by no means supported equally by all of the, the, the global players.
0: And in the Ukraine-Russia example, both India and China have kept quite quiet over, over that. And actually, um, in, the, in the press over the last couple of days, the US have uh, gone in quite strong, um, discouraging China um, about offering any support to, to Russia. Obviously, in the, the Winter Olympics, um, the president of China um, had as a special guest Putin and stuff like that, and relations between them have been reasonably tight over the last um, few years. But as I say, if, if China is you know, offering support to Russia, those economic sanctions, which actually from the West this time have been very strong and pretty united, which is, uh, which is reasonably rare or has been reasonably rare in the, in the last few decades, um, but they will be undermined if uh, if other countries are are giving that support. Chris, did you have one more thing you want to mention?
1: Yes. Well, one thing to, to say positively about this is the fact that these these sanctions are uh, seem to be effective and, and and powerful is a reflection of something that we've talked about in previous podcasts. Which in the past we've often uh, talked about global supply chains and how how they're not working. They're all in a mess. Well. Looking at the the positive side of that, I think the impact of these sanctions is a reflection of how globalized the economy is. One of the reasons why China has been quite reluctant to be seen to be supporting Russia is because China depends absolutely on its relations with other countries around the world economically. Um, And and, uh, the the very fact that it is being quite cautious because it doesn't want to destabilize its economic relations around the world is simply a reflection of how interconnected we are as a world. So I think one good thing is the reason why these sanctions against Russia are undoubtedly going to have a real impact is a reflection of how interconnected as a world we are economically.
0: Completely agree. And actually, Uh, I was reading some analysis um,
1: before doing this podcast
0: around what the impact on the global economy um, this will be. And they said that there will be some impact, but obviously Russia is one part of a lot of interconnected countries. However, when looking specifically uh, uh, at Russia, um the they believed that the Russian economy could shrink up to seven percent as as a result of the of the sanctions which really shows how uh, important they are and how much impact um, they are likely to have um especially if we they continue and possibly even get tougher depending on what happens um for the rest of the conflict right Chris I think we're going to leave that story there um hopefully you found it interesting hopefully you found some insights. Uh, We want to reiterate our support to the people of Ukraine, and fingers crossed, we can um, not be talking about this next time and the following time, and things uh, start to improve uh, the situation because it is really harrowing. The imagery and the videos that we are we're all seeing, but for now, we'll leave it there. The second story of this month's episode is all about the big five tech companies and their expansion into different areas of technology. You would have probably read about all of the mergers and acquisition that Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, and everyone else is, is doing to move into different markets and also all of the research and development spending that they are putting into new areas of technology, whether it is the metaverse, AI, AI. Um, automated vehicles, everything like that, which has got really exciting applications for the future. But it does feel that all of these tech companies are looking for the next big thing and almost that kind of competitive edge is coming out because um, they're slightly worried about, what the future holds for them and staying relevant um, in the future. Something like Facebook, for instance, you might have seen about a month ago um, within its results, is users were actually declining for the first time ever. So through the metaverse, which Mark Zuckerberg has been talking about a lot and changing the name from Facebook to Meta, um, it really shows that they're looking for a change of direction. What we're going to talk about, in this segment is all about whether this is stifling competition. The eagle listeners among you, not the eagle eye, the eagle listeners among you are uh, are going to notice that we did cover this in a very brief part of last episode. But I think me and Chris were chatting before this episode and felt actually, you know what, it deserves its own segment because it's so relevant, so current, and such a good commercial awareness story. Chris, so my starting point is... What do you see as the current strategy for these big five tech firms?
1: Well, this is very interesting because, um, uh, funny enough, the most interesting of these is actually Apple. And the reason why Apple is interesting is because um, after Steve Jobs died, uh, Tim Cook took over. And very few thought that he'd be able to maintain Apple's dominance because Jobs was the the brilliant innovator, the person with the the, the eye for design. Uh, But what people overlooked was that Tim Cook is an extremely good businessman. And under Steve Jobs, he actually helped to turn Apple around because he sorted out Apple's global supply chain, something that we've just been been talking about. And what he's done ever since, in the decade or so since, since Jobs died, is that he's uh, maintained Apple's emphasis on design and innovation, but has begun to move it towards providing services, quite apart from being a self-contained operating system. Now, contrast Tim Cook with bags of business experience to somebody like Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. And I think for them, the challenge is they had one great idea, and can they replicate it? And there's a brilliant book by Michael Lewis uh, called The New, New Thing. And it's a book about uh, a Silicon entrepreneur, Jim Clark, who set up Netscape. And it's about how Jim Clark was always looking for what he called the new, new thing. So I think from a strategic point of view, what's going to be really interesting is whether these younger entrepreneurial startups are able to repeat uh, the process? And will Zuckerberg, will his pivot towards the metaverse work? You know, does the metaverse exist? And will he actually get there? That's the strategic question.
0: Really interesting stuff, and of course, all of these businesses started up with their own ideas. I think Facebook, um, probably the most prominent, given the, the the film "The Social Network," which you might have might have seen. Um, but you know, coming from a, a bedroom, a university or college bedroom, all the way through to the creation of of, of Facebook uh, and what it's become um, today. But now it seems that a lot of these companies are now just buying up lots of budding innovative companies in different areas of the tech space. Why are
1: we seeing this and is it good for the wider economy? Um, two aspects to that. Well, one is that um, with people like Mark Zuckerberg, and in fact Steve Jobs found this himself with Apple, it's one thing to have a great idea and to go to market with it, but it's quite another thing to run a big business. You know, One of the criticisms levelled against uh, Elon Musk at, at Tesla. So there's first of all are they able to run a big business in the way that, that tim cook has done but the, the the other is that when when you um are in the position that they are in and i think that the difference between uh, these tech businesses as, as startups and what they're doing now is that In those days, they were growth companies without any real revenue. Now they are actually generating a lot of income, and they are using this income in the right way from an innovation point of view, which is to experiment. Uh, There's been a lot of academic writing about innovation, and essentially, nobody really knows how to do it. If they they did, they do it all the time. And one of the ways that that you can innovate is is just by experimenting, putting pots of money towards different projects to, to, to see if they work. And... Of course, one way of doing that is by taking over another business, which looks as if it's doing something interesting, to see if that might be a way, a way forward for you. The one thing I did want to talk to you about was antitrust or
0: lack of competition um, amongst these firms, because in a 2020 report um, by the American Congress, they argued the dominance of big tech had materially weakened innovation. At the same time, which maybe kind of naturally Tim Cook, the Apple CEO who we spoke about recently, said it was the biggest year for innovation that year. So what are we actually seeing? Because there is something known as a killer acquisition. Basically, a firm, a big firm takes over a budding firm because they are worried that the smaller firm that's gaining market share will become more dominant um, and take some of their market, income, revenue away, and therefore they kind of buy them to kind of get rid of them. So, Chris, do you see this being a major problem stunting innovation, or do you see actually the acquisition of these firms enhancing innovation?
1: Well, I think looking at this from a, a purely antitrust, as it's called in the States, or, or uh, competition uh, law uh, uh, point of view, as it's called in the UK and Europe, um I'm not particularly worried because competition authorities are actually pretty sophisticated. I mean, uh, the term antitrust came to existence, you know, a century ago in the breakup of the big oil companies, and competition authorities were then very good at looking at, you know, old-style manufacturers to seeing whether they 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 would gain a competitive advantage. But they made the transition to policing know-how businesses, I think, very well. In fact, only last week. Uh, The Competition Markets Authority in in the UK and the EU Commission launched a probe into an online advertising deal between Google and Meta. So so sometimes their reviews can be at a very high level to look at whether a proposed takeover is anti-competitive. But sometimes they can just look at different things that businesses are are doing because um, competition authorities become involved when companies are taken over, but they can also get involved if there is any suggestion of collusion between market participants, um, which I think is is what they've done there. So I'm, I'm pretty confident about the sophistication of competition authorities. And the way to look at this, the way they always look at this is, what is the impact on the consumer? Will the consumer be faced with less choice and or higher prices? And that is their starting point when they look at any proposed business combination.
0: One other thing that they are looking at as well is the spend on R&D, research and development. So the big five, they have a combined market value of over $9 trillion, which is astronomical amount of money. The amount of noughts on, on the end of that nine is, is, is ludicrous. But looking in 2021 alone, uh, the big 5 spent uh, 149 billion on research and development which as a proportion to their revenues and market value has gone up slightly compared to let's say a decade ago or a few years ago and actually i think um the us government only spends uh, about 750 billion on uh, on research and development in kind of the tech space so if you think about a government of 300 you know million people Spending four or five times the amount of these big five companies. It just shows how much they're putting in these companies into research and development, which is a really positive thing. So it's not just a case of acquiring companies so that they can maintain their dominant market position by sort of silencing them, you know, keeping them under their wing. It's actually buying these companies to try and grow them as. Quickly as possible to create the next big thing, but this is to put this on scale. This is a huge, huge um, amount of money that they're in investing into into these M and A deals. So I think there's been 110 companies bought by the big five in the past three years, and just in the augmented reality and VR space. 13 firms have been bought recently eight of which have come directly from meta so they are definitely looking at all of the next big things all of the different technology out there investing in them buying them taking minority stakes in some companies um, as well and almost a little bit like a an incubator you might have heard of startup incubators helping them grow with the expertise that they have but of course you know they're very business minded business savvy they'll take on a lot of the profits a lot of the revenue generation um, if some of these um, ideas come to fruition and do become the next big thing. There was something which I touched on at the start about this idea that big tech is looking for the next big thing, maybe a little bit confused about which direction they should go into because they're going into lots of different areas. Is this a sign that
1: big tech is stalling a little bit? Yes and no. I mean, I, I... I think that going in for research and development is a very, very good thing. And in fact, governments encourage businesses to do that by giving them tax breaks. And one of the issues that has played the pharmaceuticals industry is that a lot of their research and development hasn't been that productive over the the last 20 years. So I, I don't think big tech is stalling. I think what it's doing is a natural response, especially when you've got business leaders who are themselves inexperienced in business, which is Just throwing money at things to see what sticks and and what doesn't. But looking at mergers and acquisitions in particular, they're they're by no means uh, a tried and tested way of expanding your business. They tend to be headline catching, CEOs like them because they're exciting. But a lot of academic studies have shown that many mergers and acquisitions actually destroy shareholder value rather than than, uh, adding to it. And often uh, when a, a company puts in a bid for another company, uh, its share price will go down in the market because shareholders worry that the bidder will take its eye off the ball in terms of running its own business. Uh, It may lack experience in completing the deal. It may pay too much, and it may not reap the economies of scale that it's it's looking for. So most recently, the London Stock Exchange bought Refinitiv, which is a, a data compiling business. But it then transpired that it would have to spend £750 million in order to get savings of just £400 over five years. So shareholders didn't think that was a great return. And also Refinitiv is a service business. Amongst other things, it provides trading desks. And the London Stock Exchange doesn't really have experience of providing service. So for those reasons, the market knocked down the London Stock Exchange's price as a reflection of these uncertainties. And, and the last thing I would say about this is that business academics will trot out a statement which is that MA is not a strategy. So in other words, uh, hoping that you will merge with another business or take over another business or, for that matter, be taken over by another business is not a strategy because those are things over which you have no control. And a strategy, by definition, is only effective. It only works if it... Basically, addresses things over which you have influence or, or control. So, I think to answer your question, uh, spending money on MA activity may not be that fruitful, but I think these big tech companies have been quite savvy in actually making a series of small acquisitions rather than going in for one major acquisition. Although Microsoft's ac- uh, acquisition of uh, Activision Blizzard is very interesting because that's a, a massive move into video game development. And video game development in itself is not a business without risk where you get individuals who create brilliant games, but then are they able to replicate that success with subsequent games, which is, if you like, the sort of issue that Zuckerberg himself faces now. Really interesting stuff there,
0: Chris. We'll leave it on that story for this week. So our third story of this month is all about the meat free market and more specifically about one of the leaders in this market beyond meat and the struggles they're having currently with their share price dropping and issuing profit warnings. So to give you some context, the global meat substitute market was valued at 5.4 billion in 2020. And by 2030, it's meant to over double that. And so it's a really, really growing space. There's been lots and lots of new options for vegetarians, for vegans, for even flexitarians, people that want to reduce their their meat intake for either ethical reasons, environmental reasons or anything um, in between but Beyond Meat were looking like they were going to be the market leader. They were doing deals with McDonald's. They were seen on all of the supermarket shelves. I'm sure a lot of you would have, um, even if you do eat meat, still tasted a Beyond Meat burger or or, or something similar. They're really widespread. A couple of years ago, share price was doing fantastic, was on the up, but now it feels the gloss has been taken off Beyond Meat. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you, what's been going on with Beyond Meat?
1: Well, I, I think you're absolutely right, Ben, in saying that they're, I mean, they're a very big business. They're worth over $9, nine billion, and they have sales of $500 million a year, and they, they've been going for over 10 years, so this is a big business. But I think what they've run into is what I call the fickleness of markets, and that is that if you disappoint a market... Um, so if you announce that your earnings aren't going to be as good as the market had expected or as uh, as good as you'd led the market to expect, your share price will be marked down uh, uh, really a lot I mean, al- almost disproportionately, even though the underlying business itself is quite sound because we we're, we're not saying that, that Beyond Meat is going bust. On the contrary, all they're saying is that they haven't sold as much as as they thought they would. It's a bit like Netflix are now announcing that their subscriber numbers hadn't increased by the amount that they'd expected. It's that lack of an increase that the market finds upsetting. So I think in, in the case of Beyond Meat, it it's been a, a, a short term victim of what what I call the the fickleness of markets. But I, I think what's interesting about the story, it touches on so many themes that you and I are interested in, like, like innovation and, and strategy, which are all absolutely uh, pertinent to, to commercial awareness. So I think from our point of view, that's why it, it makes an interesting story and an interesting company to watch.
0: Stepping back slightly, there is this idea that the meat-substitute market isn't actually growing as quick as people first thought. Do you, Chris, put this down to it not being innovative enough at the moment? Or is there a marketing challenge? Or have they just completely miscalculated?
1: This is really interesting. I i I was looking at a survey by the U.S. Good Food Institute that found that over a quarter of their respondents simply didn't like the taste or didn't like the consistency. And uh, you'll know as a marketing expert that that's pretty telling. If over a quarter of your addressable market says they don't like the product, then that, that's pretty bad news. But the question is, um, is Beyond Meat in a position to do something about it? And I think the answer is yes, because I, I see this as being a, a twofold problem. One is improving the taste and consistency, and the other is educating the public in, into expecting something that isn't exactly like meat. It's exactly what's happened with alcohol-free beer and wine. They don't taste the same as the originals, but they taste quite close to the originals, and it's about educating the, the, the public into understanding that um, what you're giving up in taste, you're, you're getting in, in benefit of, of not drinking alcohol. And actually looking at looking at the senior management of Beyond Meat, I noticed that they've got a chief innovation officer who uh, originally, he's a chemist who worked on the fundamentals of molecular assembly at the. US Scripps Research Institute. and his previous roles at Beyond Meat have been director of chemistry then director of research, then vice president of innovation. So I have a shrewd suspicion that they know what they're doing.
0: Yeah, I can imagine so. And I'm about to give a very brief um, sort of marketing. uh, It's basically a philosophy, and it's not mine. This is taken from different books and various, various sources. But what Chris was talking about was basically product. In the modern day, product is absolutely essential for all marketers it's very difficult to market a bad product a while back when sort of tv advertising started most people generally believed what was on tv there weren't as many advertising messages so an advert was on tv you kind of thought that's probably going to be a good product the same as if you were reading your um, newspaper you got it delivered in the morning let's say it was the times and the big adverts in that you think well They're wealthy enough to afford an advert. It's what I'm seeing currently. I will buy that that product. So actually, product and product innovation um, wasn't as good back then. Whereas transfer now, no one's really believing. You're seeing loads of messages. No one's truly believing all the TV ads anymore. We've become more cynical. We're not not watching as much live TV. We're not reading as many magazines or, or, or newspapers. So now, instead, you need a really good product. Um, which if Beyond Meat are struggling to get the taste right, especially what they're trying to do is convert meat eaters to eating this. So it's more about the product. The meat eaters maybe don't care as much about the ethics of it or the environmental impact. They care more about the taste. And that's where their product's falling down and how they're not getting more people to go to it. And then you need marketing message, which creates an impact. And when I say impact, it gets people talking about it. So your vegetarians and your vegans, mainly the early adopters of the uh, the Beyond Meat products, because, you know, that's that's what they eat, need to be talking to their meat eating friends and telling them how fantastic and how much better it is than the the sort of regular burgers that they're getting at pubs, at restaurants, or, or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, it will create that kind of viral impact. And hopefully Beyond Meat will have a, uh, uh, will have a better uh, results going forward. I'm not going to claim that I can solve Beyond Meat's problems. It's a lot more complex than that. But if there's a problem or any slight problem with product, it's so much more difficult from a marketing message. Hence why you've got your marketing budget there and you focused on putting all these ads out there and putting all the money into ads people should hold back a little bit and put it into the innovation put it into the product because ultimately if you can get people talking about a great product that's how you'll market your products right that was a bit of a run in the end a little bit there chris so uh, hopefully hope, hopefully people will find that um, a bit useful there's lots of books i can share if you are interested in marketing feel free to to get in touch um so you 've spoken a little bit about this. My final question beyond meat, can they come back stronger, and what 's going to be the key ingredient other than possibly um, working on their 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 products getting a little bit tastier for those those sort of meat eaters that they need to to convert? but what else is going to be very important for their comeback
1: well i I think you put your finger on it, Ben, because um, another issue is price point, and Bain, the management consultancy. Mm. They did a study in which they found that plant-based meat products can be 40% more expensive than the real thing. So you've kind of got a problem because if the product doesn't taste quite right, even though it may be doing you good, if it's that much more expensive, then you're lucky if you're going to reach beyond the early adopters. And then there are other related concerns about how highly processed these products are and also their sodium levels. So I, I think the emphasis that you put on getting the product right is is absolutely fundamental. But you know, I think they can do it. I mean, in the UK, we're familiar with, um, you know, Linda McCartney's uh, vegetarian and vegan sausages, which which show that it, it can be done. And it's one of those things, in a sense, it's a no brainer that, that um, there's going to be more of a shift to plant based meat products. And in fact, the Office of National Statistics has just changed its cost of living index to include meat-free sausages as as one of those elements in the shopping basket on on the basis of which they they judge the the cost of living. So I think what this shows is that you can can be positioned uh, in a market which is going your way, as undoubtedly plant-based meat products are, but you still got to work really hard to produce a product that people actually want to buy.
0: Yeah. Interesting stuff. And I did read that story on which products. So it's each quarter, they decide on which products are, are going to be used to assess stuff like inflation and stuff like that, which is a representation of what let's say the average person in that country is going to buy. And I saw that donuts um, were removed from the, from the list. So as people are eating more vegetarian and vegan uh, stuff as represented by the fact that now it's a, uh, um, uh, in this calculation, but people are obviously eating less donuts. So interested to see whether at home you're you're thinking that and when you last had uh, a donut as well, because across the board we seem to be eating less of them. My final point on this is that um, one thing that can help Beyond Meat come back from a very specific level is that they've launched the McPlant burger. So they've done a partnership with McDonald's. Um, recently, which is actually, I think, announced about a year ago. But I think in the US specifically, it launched at the back end of last year into a, a few of their kind of flagship stores across the, the US. So if that goes well and that gets rolled out across the US and across internationally, could be a really good way for Beyond Meat to, to, to come back into relevance and start dominating the market again. So our final and fun story of this episode, we're going to be talking about the Royal Mail, the post office um, and letters, basically, because you may have noticed in between the headlines, the business headlines this month, that first class stamps went up a whole 10p. and now to send a letter to your grandparents, your parents, your friends, send you a postcard, um it's going to cost you uh, 95p to get there as quick as possible for a first class stamp so this is done by the royal mail they set the set the price so you go into the post office but you're in effect the royal mail is a separate entity to the post office and what they've seen is as you can probably imagine that the letter volume has fallen 60% since, since 2005. That still means that 7 billion letters are sent each year in the UK, but that's down from peak of about 20 um, billion. And what also they've seen since the pandemic, um, letter sending has fallen by a further 20%, I guess, given we weren't able to go out of our houses for a number of times, people that would typically send letters move towards um, sort of virtual conversations, email, whatever it might be. I tried to have a Zoom with my 93-year-old grandparents, um, which was a uh, particularly uh, trying affair. But even so, it shows that my grandma, who would always write to me, um, now uh, can, uh, can can Zoom me, which was was very nice to see her during, during that time. But Chris, it, it kind of shows a bit of a trend away from it. But surely Royal Mail and the Post Office obviously associated with it, it's in
1: decline, it will continue being that way, right? Well, it's interesting this, because you're right to draw a distinction between the two, because the Royal Mail is actually a public company. Mm. You know, it was privatised. And um, it actually went through a, a really grim period of rebranding itself. And I know we're both interested in marketing. Do you remember it rebranded itself as Consignia, mm. which lasted a couple of weeks, and then everybody thought that was a terrible idea. So that, that's, that's, that's a, a brilliant lesson how to get your, your branding wrong. But of course, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, letter delivery is in decline. And I have a, a suspicion that Royal Mail... Um, are not unhappy about that and in fact have probably increased prices to reflect the cost but also to discourage people from sending letters I mean you know we should be for goodness sake you know we should be using email and zoom why are we still sending letters Um, but interestingly where their business has really taken off is as part of e-commerce providing that that final mile tracked parcel delivery service which they do very efficiently at a, a, a really good price um, and the other thing that they're doing is they're they're harnessing this brilliant delivery network that they've got to provide other services so a lot of local businesses get their their uh, door-to-door mail shots delivered by royal mail uh, post people so, I think that they're an interestingly run business and they know exactly where their future lies and also where their costs lie.
0: Yeah, I do feel that uh, we can definitely move away from less. And we have been doing the pandemic um, highlighted that. And I think going back to my my grandparents, God, it's uh, they're getting a lot of airtime this this episode. Um, about 15 20 years ago my 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 grandma suggested that uh, she would divorce my granddad if he ever got a computer and um, which 5 years on from that uh, he did end up getting a computer and does you know some email and orders off amazon and stuff like that and thankfully after 58 years of marriage they are still uh, going strong and uh, together so i feel that if my grandma at 93 can get on board with with zoom and and email it feels that probably the letter writing uh, game is uh, is going to be uh, declining an email and zoom and everything in between is going to be uh, much more prominent but it's interesting that actually that you would think that the royal mail's lifeblood is these letters that people are still sending actually that you know the need to move away from them from their business model is uh, is, is something that maybe you don't think about um, from day to day moving to the post office now slightly so We still see them on the high street, actually, the one where I live in Balham in London, um, got redone um, a couple of years ago. So we've got a nice swanky one in in southwest London where I live. Um, But what we're seeing across the country, actually, is that 200 have shut down in the UK in the last two years, and that trend will continue to grow. Um, How can the post office maintain its relevance in the in the
1: modern day? Well, this too is very interesting because it touches on things we've talked about in the past about how to revive the high street. And um, I, especially during the pandemic, post offices played a really invaluable role in, in acting as a, a kind of social hub of, of, of villages. And so I, I think they've actually got a very bright future uh, combining with other businesses. Well, One of the most interesting ones I've I've seen was a post office that was in an artisan bakery that also happened to be on the side of a canal and had roaring custom from passing boaters. Um, so I, I, I think in something as humble as, as your village post office, there's an awful lot of room to, to be innovative. And of course, post offices do a lot more than just sell stamps. Um, you know, they, they, they um, provide banking facilities, um, they're places where you can f- submit forms for all sorts of things, way of interacting with government services. So I think they provide a really useful social service, and in the future High Street, I think they will be a very important hub.
0: Yeah, really interesting. As we've talked a lot uh, over in Series 1, I think, mainly about the transformation of the High Street, so really interesting to come back to that. My final question of this episode is around... Union so obviously with the post office shutting stores and also Royal Mail um, I think there was they, they recently installed an automated parcel sorting machine which can do you know 150 odd thousand parcels a, a, a day and stuff like that so the need for within post office and within the Royal Mail um, there is a need for less workers. A lot of the workers are unionised, and there's that kind of battle between the post office or Royal Mail and and the the union. Something similar has happened over the the, the tubes, increased automation needing less less roles. There was a couple of strikes um, earlier this month. How do you feel this is going to be resolved, Chris? Where well, there's a less need for workers, but obviously workers relying on these jobs to uh, to live.
1: Well, I, I think unions have got a really useful role to play because um, listeners won't remember this, but, but, but I do. The 70s, 80s and 90s in this country um, were very much a battleground between unions and on the one hand and government and employers on, on the other. And unions uh, exercised enormous p- political power. But what we've seen over the last 20 years, all the studies have shown that there's been a polarity of wealth. The richer have got richer and the poorer poorer. And I think unions themselves have modernized, and they play a really useful role in protecting employees, especially as businesses and types of business go through this transition, through this automation. I think unions have got a really important role to play in in protecting existing employment, protecting pensions, and finding new ways in which their members can be employed. Really interesting.
0: I think it's a fascinating um, part of the high street fascinating um, business to look at from a commercial awareness um, point of view and of course there's the Royal Mail uh, graduate scheme as as well and I'm sure a lot of people would have had uh, part-time jobs possibly in post offices when they're younger so very relevant to, to, to us as well. Chris that's it for this time I have as always loved Uh, chatting with you about all of these um, stories thank you so much uh, for joining
1: us I I too really look forward to these and I'm already looking forward to next month's.
0: next month yes April we'll be doing it slightly earlier in the month um, but lots of fantastic uh, stories that we'll be picking out just before you head off for your Easter break until next time thank you very much thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Thinking Commercially. Do head over to our LinkedIn or Instagram for more brilliant insights. And until next time, thank you very much for listening. Have a great month.